Welcome into another episode of Car Stories. My name is AJ. And I'm Chris. And today we are joined with Global Rallycross driver, host of Top Gear, stunt driver, on-air host, uh, Formula Drift champion. I'm sure there's a ton more I've left out, Tanner Faust. Record-setting pizza delivery man. Record-setting yes. pizza delivery man. Yes. Thank you so much for coming yeah, in. Thank you for having me. Uh, we, you've got a ton of stuff to get into that we're looking forward to asking you a million questions, but... Uh, We'll start going back to your childhood. Yeah, what was your first automotive memory? This sounds like a therapy session. All uh, well, yeah. <laughs> it all started when I was six. Um, actually, it was about six. I, I was maybe five, and I I have told this story to friends before. But um, my first probably automotive childhood memory is sitting in the passenger seat of my dad's nine twelve V. It was a warm day. Had these uh, wool fuzzy seat covers. We're going from Colorado Boulevard to Hampton Avenue in Denver. And uh, tires squealed a little bit going around the corner, and he made up some story about the tires being low or something. And um, but I didn't get to ride in the front seat very much. Yeah. And in that car, there were no seat belts in the back, and so you kind of had to sit in the front. So all the gear shifting and the pedals right there, you know, that you can see the steering and you could see the headlights, uh, you know, on the how the, yeah. the old nine eleven style. Uh, and um, I. I don't know. Flipped a switch. Never, never stopped paying attention to shifts and pedals since. Wow. And you, you still have that car now, don't you? I do. I bought that from him about eight years ago, and uh, you know, put it, put it back together a little bit. But it's, you know, it's got one hundred twenty-six thousand miles of, you know, going through the mountains and skiing, and yeah. and you know, it's a used car, and uh, but it's in great shape, all original, everything. Yeah, for a Porsche. I mean, you're still relatively low miles. It's gonna. Got another hundred thousand or so to go. I hope so. I mean, it's just—it's a little four banger. I thought it was the uh, fastest thing ever yeah. built, um, slowest car Porsche ever made, probably in reality. But it's still a—you um, know—it—you it, know—they discontinued the nine twelve and sixty eight, yeah. and then brought back just an American only version. So this was for the Americans that didn't need a lot of high speed, didn't need a lot of power, um, and uh, so the gearing was lower. It was a five speed. Uh, it was a four-cylinder, but it was with the new 911 body, yeah, and so it was slightly heavier, and so and a pretty rare car now. When you look back yeah. on, they it. made 1996. Yeah, a one-year-only car. That's yeah. a neat sort of rare Porsche to have. Yeah, not valuable. No, no, no. It's <laughs> you know, it's valuable. rare for a reason. The reason yes. is you know nobody wants them anymore. <laughs> they didn't then either. They ran them for one year. They sold their nineteen hundred and ninety-six of them or whatever. Only in America they sold them, and then because no one it. else was dumb enough to to want to buy them. Possibly it was. Uh, they I think they were. It was eleven thousand eight hundred dollars new. Um, That's not a cheap car then. Yeah, uh, really. Back then, no, it wasn't super. It was still a Porsche. And it yeah. was a good-looking car, and uh, you know, power sunroof and. That's about as fancy as it got. Yeah. This one has an interesting feature. It has a Blaupunk, you know, the original radio, mm-hmm. but it has a like a doctor's so built for doctors. It has a, literally a doctor's package to it, where the radio has a microphone so that you can record your medical notes while you're driving. Wow! Um, on cassette tape, and that was uh, so that's still in there. I think it still works. Now, was your that's dad a doctor? A yeah, he was a doctor. Okay, because yeah. say that would. If he didn't have it, would it make sense? Been a weird sense? thing to get. Yes. Yeah, yeah. So you didn't get into singing. I'm surprised. <laughs> I, yeah, <laughs> so a I have a microphone. rolling karaoke machine. I should probably rock that. Yeah. Uh, we read in your bio that you grew up 
you lived for a number of years in Scotland. Yeah. And yeah. that's kind of how, is that sort of how you got into your love of off-roading and rally racing? Uh, I, I think, so I moved to Scott, my parents got divorced and, and my mom got remarried and, and we moved there when I was nine. My stepfather was in the Navy and, and he was a cryptologist and there was some antenna out there that listened to the Russians, I guess at the yeah. time. And, um, so we were way out in the boonies, uh, in Scotland. We lived in this 250 year old farmhouse. I had wow. a new brother and sister, uh, you know, from the stepbrother and sister, and then my natural sister there. I like to call her my real sister. But um, so the four of us uh, had barns and hay piles and and BB guns and no friends. So that was just what we did is yeah. we just built obstacle courses and, and uh, played around and shot windows. But that um, – it was a great, great childhood and it was awesome to um, get to, you know – be, be so outdoorsy, I guess. Mm-hmm. So you kind of became an adventure junkie back then. I think of more of an adventure junkie than car person, really. But there, there was a, a taxi driver. This guy Rob, huge Scottish guy, it took me six months to understand a word he said, and he would pick me up because uh, I went to the American school. My other th- three siblings went to a sc- local Scottish school. They're a little older. I went to an American school. It was uh, he. He would pick me up in his Volvo. We'd drive the eight miles to his bus stop location start the bus up and then go pick the rest of the American kids up and go to the base uh, where the school wow. was. And um, he would hunt pheasants with his Volvo and he'd let me drive it uh, in the snow, which was awesome. Um, About but, how old were you at that time? Uh, I was 10. I was 10 before I really nailed a manual gearbox. Wow. It, but it, it was um, between that and my mom had a Volkswagen bus she'd let me drive. And, well, uh, if you're going to get sideways in the snow, a bus is probably what you want to do it in. <laughs> Uh, yeah, no, that was a bad, bad scenario. But yeah, it could be fun. There, my sister wrecked it, but that was that. But there's a, um, the bus was unique because you could sit on the edge of the seat, and I don't know if you remember from like Volkswagen buses, but the pedals go down into the floor. Right. And uh, it's weird to think about, but the gear shift is that big, long gear shift. Anywhere you put it, it always came to rest in the same spot. Uh huh. So you kind of had to remember what gear you were in. You could never just look down and and uh, kind of cheat. And it's weird to talk like that, but when you were first learning to drive stick, you'd yeah, you need to know what where you were in, yeah. and you'd have yeah. to look. And um, so that, it was a good training car because you'd always have to remember what gear you're in and about what speed that was. And you know, I had no tachometer or anything. But um, anyway, yeah. So those were stories of uh, Scotland. It was mostly just shooting things with BB guns and BMX bikes, but some fun in some cars too. So when you started to really drive, was it out there or was it? When you moved back here, when you started to drive cars, like right? at, the, at the age you were allowed to drive cars, oh, uh, back in the states. So I, you know, we we moved back to the states when I was thirteen. Mm-hmm. Then I had three brutal years of watching my siblings get their driver's licenses after I'd been driving in Scotland already for a while. Oh, and, that had and, to have been tough. Oh, and I had the bug. I I was so addicted. I was. Um, it was rough. That did, was. Did you, you know, stole the cars from the parents? Did I, yeah. Or uh, did you, no, uh, never, you know, did no, you get like never. a go kart or some other thing to, a bike or, or something that you could you know, an uh, automotive get that ether. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> a remote control car. Okay. I got a grasshopper. <laughs> there you go. I remember, you remember those. Yeah. those. Yeah. yeah. And a frog. I think that was another yep. one. It's some some weird thing with animal names. But there was a. Um, it, yeah, that was the outlet. Like, I didn't come from a racing family, I mm-hmm. and um, so it wasn't like, hey, we'll go to the go-kart track and get you a right. go-kart, or we're, you yeah. know, we'll go out and see Uncle so-and-so race. It wasn't like that. It was, um, you know, I skied in the winter. My dad was a ski racer, that and and, a, and that was his 
you know, sportsy as it got. And and you, uh, when you went to college, you didn't go for anything automotive related, right? No, I mean, when I was in school and, and going to college, I, at that time I was in Virginia and I, mm-hmm. and I went to to college in Boulder, University okay. of Colorado, and um, I I started in engineering, and the idea was to be like an aeronautic engineer, gotcha. and um, <clears throat> to do, you know, I wanted to be the guy watching the smoke go over the cars and check the you know, look at, look for vortices that could be uh, uh, used or were causing a problem, and super nerdy. I know, super nerdy, <laughs> but I I loved the the whole. Um, well, whatever feeds your passion, though. You yeah, know? I mean, that's the thing. I love vortices; they're awesome. But there's um, a new uh, Tanner Faust T-shirt. <laughs> Here we go. <laughs> and, but that didn't. Um, I got weeded out. I skied like 50 days my first year, and that's not good for engineering. Probably not. Yeah, no. I was an aerospace engineer at the time, so I took a couple years off. And you were doing ice racing. Uh, I took a couple years off and went. I moved to Vail, went skiing, um, and uh, did you know continuing ed, summer school type stuff. Ah, got back into school. That's when I got a job bus driving. Um, and I got fired for that. That was my first job getting fired from, and my only job I've gotten fired. And from. what were you fired for? Uh, I got busted doing donuts in the Beaver Creek. <laughs> I was just going to say lot. you were drifting a bus. Yeah, right? I was. Yeah, <laughs> and Beaver Creek uh, has this lot down at the base of the hill. It's a big snow-covered lot. These buses were big, fifty plus. Yeah. And uh, you know the ones with the front tires that are behind you when you're driving. Mm-hmm. And so there were there were four of us that worked the graveyard shift. When we were done, we'd go in the parking lot, the Beaver Creek West lot, and and do some donuts, and the and so you had this big dish of a steering wheel you're throwing around, and it was really weird because when you do the donuts as a driver, you'd kind of get pulled around backwards, mm, you know, because yeah. the front tires so behind far in front you. Of the yeah, it was a, it was an awesome feeling, and the snow would kind of come over the bus sometimes when you hit the powder. It was good times. So anyway, my boss was in the parking lot one night, and we all got fired. <laughs> but uh, well, you look back on it, maybe you can't blame him. Well, yeah. Well, yeah. I, and I'm guessing by now that's probably bragging rights for him. You know that guy I fired? He went on to have a career yeah. doing the thing I fired him for. <laughs> yeah, we tried. I told him he'll never make it as a bus driver, and he didn't. Yeah, he's absolutely exactly. right. It was, uh, I tried drifting a bus again on Top Gear, and it didn't work as well. So there was something about Needed more snow, talent. I think, yeah, is what I you needed. that's exactly right. So when did the racing bug sort of bite you, or when, you wanted, when did you want to get into racing? Well, the, that whole time I had watched. You asked about rally racing earlier. Yeah. I watched racing, and, but more less from a fan, but more about like uh, what do you, what's the job like? Like what is it like to drive the car? And you can't tell much. No. Um, but rally racing, you can. And I remember um, seeing ninety one, ninety two videos of Colin McRae. And with rally racing, you can see the front tires twitching as they're sliding around a corner. You can see everything that's going on. And uh, got addicted to watching that stuff. Mainly because you could see the experience that the driver was going through. Sure. Yeah, and especially some of the most of the in-car footage. I mean, more oh, in-car footage in rally racing than any other type of racing. Totally, and there's and the action is happening at the steering wheel. Yeah, you know, it's not buttery smooth all the time. It's reacting. So there's lots going on. And there's nothing scarier than watching an in-car camera of when they roll, and they are completely unfazed by it. Uh, when you've got the you know the the guy calling out the directions and then they just they go over the look on their faces. I'm going to look forward and wait for it to stop, and and yeah. just I mean, they're such professionals when it comes to, to rally racing. They are the co-driver. Sometimes you hear the co-driver after they've done a big crash and they're yeah. hanging upside down there, and he magically says the words "Are you okay?" But what you hear is "You idiot." <laughs> 
Yeah. <laughs> it's like, and you, it's like you hear him say, it's the tone, right? Are you okay? Did you not here. Right <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, but there's never, you know, there's never any cussing as they're going over. There's never any you know, eyes closed or oh, crying. You should watch the Irish in car videos. They're awesome. <laughs> the Irish are the, the ones. Huh? Oh yeah. They're you great. and your co-driver have to be friends because if you don't trust each other, you're just not going to make a good team. It's true. It's a, my co-driver for the eight years I did stage rally was Chrissy Beavis. Uh, I started out with Scott Crouch, who was my was actually strangely before I got the bus driving job, uh, I got a job as a lot guy in a car dealership um, during my first year of school, and he was my boss. Um, oh, and wow. he, yeah, he ended up being my first sponsor in rally racing. He came up skiing in Steamboat where I where I was uh, living and and said. Um, you know, I took him around the ice driving track, and he uh, said that uh, this ra- this stuff's cool. We should get a rally car. Literally that afternoon, had one found, a used one. Wow. He bought it. Um, the dealership, I think it was Flatiron Subaru that he was a manager at, they they serviced it, and we re- went racing. Um, then later had Chrissy Beavis as a co-driver, who now is uh, working on a house remodel for me. She's a, She was actually an architect, was her day job. Um, so it's a, it's a, it is a small world in yeah. rally, but yes, yeah, so you are sitting, you have headphones on in the car, you're in an intercom system, you're breathing and burping in each other's heads basically the whole time. Sorry, it's a little graphic, but, um, you're each other's confident. You're talking the whole time. Yeah. And, uh, how do you split your brain between what the co-driver is saying and what you're seeing and trying to do? Cause they're talking ahead of what you're doing. You know, I mean, they're kind of giving you the next step. How do you, how do you That's their do sk- that in your head? You know, their <laughs> skill, their challenge is to not read too far ahead or right. too far behind. Right. And they have to base that on what they see coming up in the notes. So as the co-driver sitting there, let's say you have generally it's numbers one to six. Six is like a flat out corner. Mm-hmm. You could say it's sixth gear and a one would be a tight hairpin. You could say first gear. Gotcha. And so if they see that there's a lot of fives and sixes coming up, the speeds are going to increase. And so they can start leading you further ahead, like gotcha. two and a half turns ahead. Wow. Um, but if it gets tight and they see some ones and twos, those take a while. You have to brake, you have to turn. And, and so they need to be a little bit tighter to those, maybe only one turn ahead. So that's their skill is being able to gauge how much ahead your cognitive buffer can take. And they can tell the instant they've gone too far, your hands get a little twitch and you say, ooh, ooh, what was that one? You know, right. and, and then they know they've pushed the limit too much. They've got to read your, what you're doing. Yeah. And, um, and as a driver, you just have to do what they say. You just, how, how long did it take you to learn that communication? Because it's a very specific style of communication. How long did it take you to learn that so that you could feel a little bit more intuitive with, uh, with, uh, or in tune with what they were saying? It, it, it takes a while. Like if you were to go to the very top level of rally to WRC, mm-hmm. it's probably like uh, it's a, like a nine-year commitment. Like it's yeah. going to take you four years before you're able to handle the pace notes like the other guys. I feel like I feel like it's like going to a car auction and actually understanding what the auctioneer <laughs> says. Yeah. You know, because things are happening that fast. You know. Yeah, it does happen really quick, but when it clicks, it's amazing. It is an amazing, awesome. and it's experience. amazing to watch. Yeah. It, it it's just it's some it's something unreal to see that when it's in sync and working, seeing a team just go through the woods or go through the snow as fast as they can. And it looks like this is their driveway. They drive every yeah. single day. They have absolutely tapped 
every bit of momentum and speed out of that sequence of corners. But the fact is, is they've only seen it once or twice before. Yeah. And there are thousands of those sequences in a weekend, you know, right. it's, it's, um, it really is incredible to be committed to the notes, finish a stage and literally as a driver, all you're doing is translating what they're saying. It's going into your ears and out through your hands and feet. You aren't filtering it or getting in the way wow. when it works the best. So when you were coming up in rally racing, what was sort of your goal? Where did you, how far do you think you could take it? Did you want to go on and do WRC? Did you think maybe I'll get into another form of racing? Did you want to do like an open wheel or a stock car? Um, how did you move on from rally racing? Uh, well, rally racing, that, I mean, that was at the very beginning for me. So yeah. I, I, after school, I got a job as an ice driving instructor in steamboat uh, after college. I ended up graduating in biology, thinking I'd go into the medical side of things. But I ended up getting a job as an ice driving instructor. And there, that, the techniques were all rally. We watched rally videos. We talked about rally stuff all the time. And, I, and it just got cooler and cooler. To me, and and rally, the very first race I did was the first time I, I really admitted in the opening drivers meeting when they asked, you know, who here is trying to make a, a living at racing. That that was the first time I really admitted myself that yeah, I think I'm, I think that's what I'm gonna try to do. Yeah. And um, so it's hard to imagine, you know, WRC or something like that. I never realized I'd really be able to get a sponsor. You know, you're only thinking about how much the tires cost at that point. Yeah. And so it was uh, – every every step of the way has been kind of a surprise, a, a wonderful surprise. But it's um, – uh, when when I got a kind of a first – the first organized team was with a team called Sims, which is a company that didn't really take in the U.S., but it's uh, a European rally team. And that was the first time we showed up with like 20 people mm-hmm. and pressure and had to answer for every second. And when you're talking about racing through the forest for three days and you have to answer for every second that you've made a mistake or lost, yeah. it's, it's a pretty lot to awesome. Talk about. It's daunting. Yeah, yeah there's yeah, a lot to talk about. Exactly. A lot of fun. So um, how does – I mean, obviously, you know, you're doing a lot of global rally cross now. You did the WRC. And while they both have rally in the name, they're two very different things. How did, how did that – kind of translate when you started doing the uh, global rally cross um well the same time i was doing rally um in the force i was doing drifting uh and um drifting i learned a lot about the marketing side of things because drifting is a very unique sport in that it's kind of seen as an action sport right and it was actually uh relatively easy to get sponsored to do drifting stuff where rally racing was like impossible Really? So I was robbing Peter to pay Paul, and do you think that's because the rallies are typically done in a forest where yes. there's nobody there to see the cars? Very difficult to see. It's kind of like drag racing in in England. It exists, but it's probably not. Nobody get really huge. cares. Yeah, yeah. And so rally racing in the U.S. exists and it has a cult following, but it's difficult to make it huge because yeah, you have to go out in the woods, you have to camp out and and be into it. Right. Um, yeah, whereas drifting is sort of like the freestyle motocross in your face. World, it yeah. is in your face, yeah. And probably one of the most more dangerous sports for spectators. Probably. There's lots of chunks of <laughs> rubber coming at high <laughs> You're standing there with the car speed. going by you and there's nothing between you, you know. Um, but so uh, rallycross um, I saw as kind of a nice blend between the two. Mm-hmm. Um, it, I, I first saw a video in, uh, of uh, Marcus Grunholm in Sweden doing a rallycross event. And Marcus mm-hmm. Grunholm is a famous WRC rally racer. Right. Uh, one of the 
top five drivers, I think, in the world and on my personal list. But um, he – it was like, wow, if we could do that, that would be awesome. If we could bring that to the U.S., that could be a form of rally that people in the U.S. take. Sure. I mean it's multiple cars on a track instead of just one. It's on a closed course. Um, you know, it's, it's easy to understand as a new sport mm-hmm. because the first car across the line wins. Right. Um, the cars are wickedly fast. They're actually twice the horsepower of a rally car. And they um, – And you're by yourself. And there's big jumps and, yeah, you are by yourself. So then Chrissy went back to being an architect uh, and uh, she actually she started co-driving for Travis Pastrana. But it's um, – that – that I went and did the European series. It had been around in Europe for 45 years. You, if you've right, seen yeah. those videos of like a 600-horsepower Volvo like mm-hmm. bouncing off a hillside next to an RS200 Ford and, and yeah. crazy uh, Group B rally cars um, racing door-to-door, that's rallycross from back in the day. Anyway, so we so helped to bring that sport here in the form of global rallycross. My manager at the time was a guy named Brian Gale. And uh, somebody I'd worked for back in the in the day was Chip Pankow. Put those two together, and uh, they actually took off with Global Rallycross and, and then sold it a few years ago um, to uh, to a guy named Colin Dine, who's been doing amazing things with it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it seems like it's getting bigger and bigger and more mainstream every month. I mean, almost every race, you feel like you're hearing more and more about it, uh, and it's just it's become this. It's almost saving auto racing. It's you know, getting it's more coverage. The it's, there's a younger just, crowd yeah, watching it, I think. It. These are great things to hear. Yeah. i got to be honest. I mean, the whole idea behind this was that it's fun. Yeah. yeah. It's, like, super fun. And the cars are fun to the point not many race cars look super fun. And they don't look like but cars these do. so much anymore. These are cars you can go buy for 15 grand. Yeah, for you can me. identify with the cars that you're seeing on the track in, in yeah. GRC. Mine is, the, the, is a Beetle. Yeah. It's the same shape as the Beetle. It's not some crazy uh, no. GT1, you know. And, and your car fiber, really stands out on the track because it's it's a unique shape. The other cars all kind of have the same sort of, uh, you know, the Fiestas or Subarus or look. whatever. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's a sport that really in Europe in the last ten years has really been based around the hot hatch, type, right. just like WRC, just like sure. rally racing. Um, the Beetle does completely stand out, and and that's one of the main reasons I went to Volkswagen from Ford was the. The opportunity to to get in something new and yeah. um and that it, that is it, like the most iconic shape in cars oh, definitely um and so it's uh it really is kind of a unique opportunity like and you're developing it right during the race really right I mean, yeah <laughs> this year is tough okay so this year we debuted the beetle um i had two really rough races in the beginning uh was from the the very first day of grc it was kind of a – we did it with a Top Gear festival mm-hmm. out in Barbados. And so we actually had a winner of the first day um, and rather than just of the whole weekend. And I won the first day, which for our series meant absolutely nothing, but it was a good right. thing for Top Gear festival. And it showed the speed of the Polo that was the Volkswagen we right. were driving. Um, and then from the second day on, it's been a rough road. Yeah. Like second day, blew two tires, lost a door, got black flagged for that. Um how do you lose a door? I landed uh, a little bit sideways and hard enough that both tires blew. And when the rims dug into the dirt landing, uh, it, was it was enough force that literally it popped took, off a door. Yeah, and recognize these are you know little fiberglass, yeah, sort of doors. 
Right. They're not. Yeah. <laughs> they're not real doors. <laughs> the airbags didn't go off. <laughs> yeah. No. Thankfully. Um, but there's uh, it, so I kind of blew the championship a little bit early in the season. Gotcha. And um, the unique thing about rallycross is that. Uh, you can't just build a car. Like if you're going to develop a car in a real proper way, the way that Volkswagen does, um, you can't just build a fast one on your own and then it, put it in racing and expect it to do well. You really right. need to get it in the heat of battle. You need to crash it. You need to have other cars crash into it. Yeah, you got to make it durable, right? You need to jump it and see how it flies in the air and how, uh, you know, because all the jumps of the tracks are all different each each week. Yeah. So there's and the um, arrow on that car is totally different than anything else in the class. It is, it is. So it's it's uh, it's important to battle test it. So this was our opportunity in fourteen to get some battle testing done, so that when we come fifteen with two beetles between Scott and I, that we can hit the ground running. And you've got a, a smaller motor than the rest of the pack, yep. but you also get a little bit of weight savings too. Is that true? Yeah, that's the idea. We haven't taken full advantage of that yet, but it's like uh, it's a one point six liter motor so theoretically we should be able to run almost 200 pounds lighter wow um but it, and it's also an opportunity for vw to showcase because 1.6 liter is a pretty popular motor in their lineup yeah uh, and uh showcase the capabilities of that we're pushing almost 550 horsepower out of that that's insane at that 1.5 liter i mean and that much horsepower yeah is I mean, just, you would think would be unheard of you're in the realm of uh you know three more than 300 horsepower per liter and it's staggering because you're giant remember, turbo. Uh, yeah, I mean, well, the turbo spins fast. Gotcha. It, it's not gotcha. big. It gotcha. has to have response. You know, gotcha. the car has to be drivable, but so it's not a giant turbo, but it makes a ton of boost. I mean, it's yeah. You don't have long straightaways to get up a lot of speed. You got to do it instantly, right? Yes, it's got to be here now, and it's, so it's like forty-eight pounds of boost. But you get wow. that boost when you're off throttle, even because yeah. of the anti-lag systems. And that's why those cars are popping and shooting flame and everything like that is just uh, keeping those turbos spinning like crazy. Yeah, I, I, I saw you uh, in uh, down in Long Beach um, uh, a couple weeks ago uh, racing around there, and it was really interesting to you to the sound of the race. It wasn't – it's not that loud because it's, it's turbo, so you, the turbo kind of quiets things down a little bit, but there's all these little backfires that just kind of add this oh. excitement. <laughs> Yeah, you hear a lot of yep. blow-off sounds like yep. that, and yeah, the the anti-lag systems are ridiculous. And and you know, I, I still do a lot of the races in Europe. In fact, next weekend headed to Turkey for one of those races, and that's a different championship over there. But um, it's uh, one of those things where you get over there and you kind of feel jet lagged and everything like that. And then as soon as you flip that anti-lag switch. It just wakes you oh, right up. Oh, man. It's yeah. awesome because it's just all of a sudden everything is tensed and wound so tight and ready to go. Every sing, single time you touch the throttle, you have full boost. Uh, it's an awesome feeling. What what it would be uh, like a zero to 60 time in a car like that? Uh, they're just under two seconds, 1.9 seconds. How, do, how yeah. many gears do you go through to get to that? Uh, to in most <laughs> cars, <laughs> most cars you, you do two. two. You'd be in first and second. Wow. How much um, shifting are you doing during the race? Quite a lot. Yeah. The, the shifting happens in less than gosh, I'm gonna you know I'm not a tech, but I would say uh, I'm trying to remember. It's like 35 or 40 milliseconds. Okay. Um, they're flat shifts, so you stay full throttle, and you have a sequential shift. It's all mechanical. It's just forward backwards. It's forward and back, and literally when you pull it, the force on the lever. Uh, cues the engine to go through a strategy of misfire and timing and whatever so that it releases the pressure on the gears just for an instant so that it falls into the next gear and then 
it relights. So wow. it all happens very fast. It, it's just insane that you would think that th- these cars, because it's still sort of a, a growing sport, wouldn't be so sophisticated. But it, it, there's such big, you know, factory back sponsorship, and the big race teams are involved, and you know how sophisticated these cars already are. You kind of wonder where it's going to go from here. It's making a turn, and yeah. there's, I mean, these are cars generally the competitive ones are. Born out of the hills of Norway. I mean, this is like yeah. a sport that's a real Scandinavian, strong play in Scandinavia for rallycross. And so a lot of these teams, if you cruise around the paddock, you'll hear hoody boodish, mortgage you know, yeah. like a lots of uh, – that's my Swedish. Yeah. But that's um, – <laughs> You learned that from the Muppet Show. Yeah, right? five years of being with a Swedish team. That's what I picked <laughs> up. Um, but they uh, – <laughs> which is sad. <laughs> but they um, – yeah, that's – so the technology was really built around – a set of rules and the crazy tracks in Europe. But here in the States, um, we don't have permanent rallycross facilities. So we're taking the racing to the people. And so they're temporary tracks, usually on a flat paved surface. Yeah, down uh, the that tr- some dirt, race was some dirt, a parking lot with a junk. pile of dirt in the middle of it. Right. And so um, the design, the ultimate design of the car is different than in Europe. And so the Beetle really, you know, you, we've thrown out the slogan, Mark's a new era in rallycross. Part of that is because it's one of the first cars engineered specifically around global rallycross-style tracks, mm-hmm. and the radial tires that are running global rallycross completely changed the sport versus bias ply that's still run in Europe and has been run since the 70s. It's got to be kind of weird uh, shifting from tarmac to dirt to tarmac to dirt on a track like that, too, isn't it's it? It's awesome. Yeah. It's awesome. Does and a car just, like, instantly grip and then loosen up, or, or are, you know, are you fighting it when, it, when you change... Uh, uh, surfaces? Uh, well, not to get too nerdy, but um, it's different with the radial tires in the U.S. versus the bias ply in Europe. So um, the radial tires tend to have less grip on the gravel mm. um, than the bias ply and more grip on the pavement. So there's a much bigger difference between dirt and pavement. And so you have to be ready for the pavement, have the car in line straight, and when you hit the pavement, be ready to take advantage. Because it's just going to pick gotcha. up right away. Yeah, because, and if you're sliding on pavement in the radial tires, it doesn't work. Um, where the bias ply, it's kind of the same. It's a mm. little bit more slippery on the gravel, but they don't have much grip on the pavement either. Yeah. So it's kind of a smooth transition. And the way that you're – So your bus drifting experience comes yeah, into play. Yeah, there. you're just <laughs> drifting buses the whole time, sawing <laughs> at that wheel. But there's uh, – so you have um, – the tracks are designed in a way in Europe where they each kind of have a different flavor. They're usually a lot of elevation change, mm-hmm. a couple miles long tops, but um, maybe the braking zones will be gravel, and then the hairpin turn will be like a banked tarmac hairpin turn. So if you can imagine six, eight cars sliding in on the gravel because the under braking, sliding sideways and the braking sometimes works a little better. Gotcha. And then getting the wheel spin going and catching the, the pavement and so you get this row of cars just sideways next to each other through these paved hairpins. It's a it's awesome, awesome thing. Wow. It's like yeah. a synchronized dance of uh, cars, isn't it? Yeah. So how do you Can go like from, that. you know, in your career, all this rally racing you've been doing, what got you into the stunt driving, the movie uh, driving, and then now the on-screen hosting? Uh, so if we – let's see. If we're uh, talking about – as soon as I got into rally racing – there was a movie that came out that was Dukes of Hazard. Sure. Yeah. Um, a guy named Dan Bradley was the second unit director. Second unit is stunts. And um, he was going to have a rally race. 
And the word rally was getting thrown around a lot. And as you mentioned before, it's not a big word in the U.S. So no. mm-hmm. Not a real clear definition of what that meant in Dukes of Hazard land. Yeah. What it meant was some muscle cars bouncing on dirt roads and crashing into each other. And, that's, and so they're like, we need to get some rally drivers, come out here and do our rally race. And so uh, Reese Millen, myself, uh, a couple other guys that have stayed in a circle, Rich Rutherford, um, we went out there. Uh, those two guys actually Where was that film? film. That was in Louisiana. Rally uh, capital of North America. That's right. <laughs> and uh, we had a great month and a half. Of oh, I'm sure. Just tearing through the woods. Some of the dirt roads they had closed down for this um, were – we had six-mile-long takes going through just just bashing through dirt roads. And so Reese was the good guy. I was the bad guy in that movie. And we, so what were you driving? I was uh, – in that long take, I was Billy Prickett. So I was in a black Mustang with Boss Hogg's picture on the side, and uh, Reese was in the General <laughs> Lee, which he drove uh, for the whole movie. I got right. to drive for maybe the first 10, 15 minutes of the movie, but he did most of the work, which was really awesome work he did. And um, then we had a Mitsubishi Evo rally car that had been converted into a camera car, and we would just chase that thing through the forest, uh, bashing into each other, trying not to destroy the cars too much so they would make it. Right. Anyway, that was my look into the movie world, and I've done a lot of movies with Dan Bradley since then. Yeah. Um, mostly driving movies. Sometimes you get called to do like blockbuster stuff, like yeah. Iron Man or some, you know, Born Ultimatum or Born Legacy, where driving is not really the main part of it. And those can be a little hard. You sit on your hands for a while, um, and uh, but still incredibly fun to crash on purpose. Oh yeah, I'm sure. Yeah. It, it's really, really uh, kind of a, an interesting world to get into there. Yeah, which uh, which movie uh, was the uh, the most challenging, and and uh, which one was the most fun to work on? Uh, I, I would say uh, Tokyo Drift. Yeah, yeah, Fast and Furious. I mean, six people may have seen that here that are listening, but there's. Uh, including AJ. Okay, but good, I'm good. one who's seen it six times. So. Okay, good. So, <laughs> oh, so it was you. <laughs> he was the guy. Okay. I will it wasn't write, really six people. It was yeah. just AJ many times. <laughs> good or bad, I will write out the whole series. They keep making them. I'll keep watching them. That one, there were there was a lot of driving done, and there was hardly any CGI. And, I mean, we were so annoying to the CGI guy on set. We're like, no, people can tell. I saw the second one. You could tell they didn't really jump over the river and the oh, bridge. Don't, you know? don't ruin this one. Yeah, yeah, sorry. <laughs> And uh, he, he, he believes in this like some yeah, kids yeah. believe in sorry, Santa Claus. Yeah. Sorry, so. sorry. Um, but we it was Reese and I in that one that time. I was no, I was the bad guy again. He was the good guy. Uh, so he uh, I can't remember the names, but I was DK Drift King and I was in a gray 350 Z. Yeah, you did the drift up the uh, the parking garage ramp. Actually, that is the only 350Z part I didn't do. I did the test for that. Reese actually did that right. on the day. Man, I've he got w- questions for Reese. He wanted the glory. It was an easy move. It was second gear. Just slide up the It thing. was cool. It was awesome. It was awesome. Um, the uh, But that, that movie was fun because we had to match cars that were not really meant to be matched. So in, in one scene, I think it was on the it was shot in Azusa on the back of the dam. Mm-hmm. Um, it was supposed to be, you know, some hill in, in outside of Tokyo, and it was uh, a Mustang against a 350Z, tandem drifting there. Right. And trying to get those two to have the same grip and slide sideways next to each other was... Yeah, two very different cars. Oh, it was unbelievably challenging. And the dam road, by the way, the dam road, it was, you know, one car wide. 
And so uh, it had a slope going down the back of the dam that if you fell off of, you were not going to walk away. The seatbelts didn't really work that well. You know, it, it, it's a movie, so you didn't have a helmet on. You had, I had a, you know, a black mohawk. So there's not um, – uh, it was really, really dangerous. Yeah. And then in the movie, they took that, they took the edge of the road and they made it a straight down cliff with computer graphics, which meant we could have shot the whole thing in like a church parking lot or, or like on a regular road <laughs> right. somewhere without yeah. a cliff. But um, in any case, it was very challenging and awesome, and it, and it turned out uh, really cool in the film. Have you ever just been asked to do something where you know you've gone? I've got no problem going sideways along a cliff, but even I know this is not going to work out. Yeah, there's an element, and, and P, there's an element of reality, that, you know, f- taking from a creative mind and applying it to the real world. There's yeah. an element of that in stunts in general that is the challenge in Hollywood, uh, essentially. And there are people that are brilliant at it. Um, Rich Rutherford is one of those. And, and, uh, but people that are stunt coordinators, that's their job is to take the director who says, okay, I want this car just sideways for like six blocks, you know, shooting out the window and this and that, and then right. say, okay, so we'll, you know, step back into the world of reality here. and of physics. How can we get the feeling that you're trying to get out of the scene in a, something that is physically plausible? Right. And um, so that's uh, – it's amazing how that works, and that's kind of a really fun part of Hollywood is trying to connect those dots. Have you ever had anything go just terribly wrong when you were doing one of these stunts in a movie? Uh, yeah, I mean, there's mistakes that happen and, um, it's, uh, sometimes they just don't go the way that they're supposed to. And there's a cleanup, uh, of sorts. I mean, in, in, I mean, on a, on, on one side, let's see, Need for Speed was a film I worked on and this time I was the good guy. Yeah. And, uh, in Need for Speed, there were some We have the Mustang upstairs in our Hollywood gallery right now. Oh, do you? Which one? The GT500. Oh yeah. yeah. Okay, so I yeah. got I drove that one through Atlanta and and on the on the speedway out there at Atlanta Motor Speedway, but um, actually no, Road Atlanta. It was okay. Road Atlanta. But yeah, that was fun. That was a good car. Um, I took one home from the movie. Actually, I took uh, in the opening scene with all the muscle cars. Right. Some of the best movie cars I've ever seen, and they're typically sorry for the tangent, but typically no. in movies. No, uh, they look great. So if you see like a you know a James Bond car come across uh, the auction block, you know look close because yeah, oh, yeah. oh it was in the movie, but it's probably based on a 1992 Ford Mustang. Well, uh, it's uh, funny you say that. We have uh, uh, from Die Another Day. They did yes. that that uh, race. Oh, well, ice. not race, but chase on the ice flow. Yes, the Jaguar with the machine gun on the back. Right. We own one of those, and it's actually built from a Ford Explorer. Exactly. So and look close. Exactly. And if you look, <laughs> and if you open the door and look down, you can still see Ford Explorer down there. Yeah, yeah. and ground. Yeah. yeah, yeah, right beneath your feet. So. They're movie cars. They're made to last one shot, and then and they only got to look good on the screen. Right. Well, this movie company put together um, some really good cars for Need for Speed because they really wanted to do the stunts for real, and. They took all these muscle cars. They put uh, new suspension, coilover suspension, new drivetrain, LS3 motors, all throttle by wire, and and then had old Camaro and Torino and GTO mm-hmm. bodies on them. And they were amazing cars. And so I was able to get one from. from Which that. one did you get? I got the Camaro. Reese actually drove it. Uh, you know they have hydraulic handbrakes, just like a drift car. 
um, and uh, we added some steering angle in the cars to make them drift better in the film, uh-huh. and it's a now it's street legal somehow, but it's a great, great machine. So did you keep it as a stunt car, or did you kind of make it more of a street car? Or? I put plates on it and, and drive, drive it the way it is? Put belts and plates, yeah. All right. Well, if I see that car on the street, I'll... I'll uh, drive wide just in case you decide <laughs> yeah. to drift around the corner. Well, and, uh, what I like so much about, especially that opening scene, is it, it's not crazy over the top, those chase scenes, but it's very real. I mean, it's all very real driving, very real race scenes. You know, it's not tuner cars jumping over drawbridges. Wait. Yeah, that was I, fake? Yeah, I know. I know. <laughs> yeah. But no, it, it, that movie had very realistic kind of throwback old school driving scenes there were real stunts in there's the gilbert family and uh, lance gilbert was the second unit director his dad his uncle his brother this is a very famous um stunt uh family which means you've never heard of them because stunt guys are famously behind the scenes yeah and uh they were incredible, and they put together some epic, epic stunts. And, I mean, we had chases at over 100 miles an hour, more like 120 miles an hour, um, with helicopters right over the roof of the cars and then the actual helicopter shooting the scene over the top of that helicopter. And uh, and then to have the actors into the action and not CGI at all with green screens, we had these race cars. Like a, I was in a red Koenigsegg that was, you know, a, a fake Koenigsegg with you know a nice body on it mm-hmm. but then the steering wheel and pedals were up above the engine outside of the car and so I was sitting up in that while the actors inside Aaron Paul is inside the car with cameras around the other stunt guys and we're going 100 miles an hour in this we called it the pod car right so I'm driving from the roof the helicopter skids are like chest high and uh, going 100 miles an hour through Mendocino County through the woods and stuff, it was unbelievable. The, <laughs> what a rush. <laughs> yeah, it was really, really cool. And, and you finish one of those days, and you're just like, geez, I can't believe we just did all that stuff. That was rad. Does, when you're driving the actor, and they're, they're basically helpless because they're not controlling anything, does Aaron Paul pull you aside at one point and go, Look, bro, please don't kill me. They have to be nice to you. Yeah. They have please to be don't. absolutely nice please to you, don't right? Kill me. <laughs> no, his wife. His wife did. But there's um no, he was really cool. And uh they love it. They you know, and, and for them it's probably I would imagine, I'm not an actor, but I would imagine it's the easiest gig they've ever had because they're going a hundred. They don't have to yeah. act like they're going a hundred. Yeah, know, they're genuinely scared. Yeah, right? yeah especially if you have to act like you look scared. Right. Probably pretty easy to do that. Sit in a green screen and pretend like all these things are around when really it's just a big green wall must be really hard. With the, with the steering wheel that's not connected to anything, right. so they just keep turning it and turning it and turning it in the same direction. Yeah. <laughs> First of all, it's not hard for Vin Diesel. He's a pro. <laughs> he makes it look very easy. But he's got the same expression for all the situations. <laughs> well, so yeah. that's... Surprised, scared, happy, it's all the same thing. Yeah. So how did Top Gear come about? Um, t- when I was drifting in 2004 or so, there was uh, 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 the production company was called WATV that covered the actual races, and um, they they uh, it, I think it was on G4 TV. Olivia Munn was mm-hmm. the host who went on to be Maxim Stardom, um, and they uh, were doing another show and they wanted a driver to be kind of a host of it. And they and so from doing interviews for the actual drifting coverage, they're like, oh, you know, you do a good interview. Let's put you on a show and we'll see how it goes. And then I ended up working with them, uh, you know, for six, seven years on on a bunch of different projects. We did a speed show called Supercars, um, 
uh, exposed. It was supercars exposed. Then we did Battle of the Supercars with uh, Paul Tracy. Mm-hmm. Um, did an ESPN show called Import uh, Racers. And then uh, some other strange ones on Magrack, which is like in your hotel room. If you really search through all the menus. Once you've gotten past all the movies. Yeah, all the adult movies and everything. You've gone through the menus. There's like uh, documentaries and stuff like that on cars. And, and there's probably some old Magrack That's videos. the free TV in the it's hotel. It's all free, yeah. <laughs> it's for somebody who, yeah. They somehow... <laughs> walk through the storefront of, of movies for money and they get to the free stuff, yeah. Um, but then Top Gear, uh, the UK Top Gear, came, a lot of the, the guys came over and they were going to do a show on NBC. And uh, they had Adam Carolla. Right. And they were looking for two other guys. And so I went and talked with them and then uh, then then Adam Carolla and I were matched up and we went looking for a third. We made a pilot uh, and it was super fun. Carolla is a, a very, very funny guy, still a good friend of mine. And um, they didn't take the pilot, but History Channel, would, thankfully, was there and, yeah. and picked that up. And we went casting again, and, and we've had a blast with it ever since. And what are I don't know, some of your favorite moments that you've done from Top Gear? It's, you know, at first, it's really easy to say the fast cars, you know. Yeah. And, and um, there was the F-12, for sure, was one of my favorite uh, just it was an out of body experience to to really break that car down on on PCH and drifting it on some of the most epic cliff roads and then the next day six sets of tires show up and then take it on Sonoma and then pair it up tandem with an actual drift car and literally just take this I don't know four hundred thousand dollar Ferrari and and just shred the tires off it all day that to me at the end of the day is that beer was really tasty. Yeah, I bet. I bet. <laughs> that that was like a blast. great day. Um, but through the years of doing the show, some of the favorite favorite stuff for me has been stuff with the other guys. You know, we've really become good friends. We've found ourselves on the top of volcanoes in Iceland and, uh, you know, weird places in Alaska and absolute strangest corners in Georgia and all over the country. We've found some really fun adventures in different places. And I, and I what was your uh, favorite uh, destination trip that you've done for Top Gear? I would say Iceland. That, that kind of yeah. popped up as one. I would say Iceland, but we were sort of frustrated on that one Yeah. Um, because it's Iceland, so the weather is, uh, you know, a little bit uh, strange. And <clears throat> there are some things that you do along, you know, some the way the show generally works is there's a little bit of a skeleton of what's going to happen in the show. <clears throat> as far as what the challenges are going to be and what the mm-hmm. producers have put together. And then the meat of the show and, you know, everything that you hear and all the talking and everything is just happens at on the, right. on the day. Um, so one thing that we knew that was going to happen at some point was we were going to, you know, Rutledge was going to get stuck going up the mountain. And, and there was this big, beautiful vista where that particular one was going to happen. But we got stuck like six times on the way there. And it was like, <laughs> can we just shoot the – Instead of yeah. pushing out, uh, so what you the plan car, for? And yeah, what happens. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm going to get unstuck here so that I can go get stuck over there. But um, it was so windy and so foggy that that literally uh, you couldn't see over the end of the hood. And so right. it was like days and literally days of of s- slow crawling in these trucks with one psi in the tires on top of 15 feet of packed snow. 
Right. Going up, waiting for the guide's truck to just disappear down a crevasse. Right. And we're completely sucked into the point where the guide couldn't see beyond his hood. He's just going off of an old GPS from, like, 1987. And we're cruising our way up and thinking that literally the show is just going to be us in these cars with a white background. And then the clouds kind of part, and you just saw the amazingness up there. And the yeah. borealis came out in the evening, and it was just it just turned spectacular. So that that really was an amazing show. Yeah, I don't think people realize because you know, as far as a reality show, they'll go, "Oh, they got it all planned out. They all know what they're doing." But planned out or not, if they're going to film you guys driving in the fog in Iceland, you guys have to still be in the fog in Iceland. Yeah, you can't be like, oh, let's come back in a yeah. couple weeks. Yeah. No, it's, you don't uh, have a fog machine and a pickup truck in front of you <laughs> yeah. making that happen. You're doing it for I mean, real. you guys really have to go and do and experience all of this stuff. You do. And that's sort of the way that it works is you have the most ambitious idea mm-hmm. knowing that it's going to fail. Uh, but the failure forms the meat on the bones because of the friendship and the competitiveness between the guys. And um, who knows what's going to ha- end up happening, but we're going to get it on camera. And so like uh, one, a good example of that is when we turned cars into boats and, uh, you know, which the British show did at one point and they went across mm-hmm. a pond. But our producers sitting in their, their cubicles um, in Hollywood thought, well, it would be a good idea to go across Lake Ontario. Okay. Yeah, sure. 30 miles, which didn't look like much on the map, I'm right. sure. Yeah, it's but, just a little spot. 30 miles across water is a long, long way uh, on boats that only can go in circles. So uh, <laughs> that was one of those things where we just got out there and, you know, Rut is putting on about his 15th layer of sunscreen. And it's just uh, mayhem. I literally had to go. Um, so I got had a, had a ride that took me to the airport. And we just have to ride because I, I had a flight and I had a race the next day. Right. And so just has to it doesn't it's not like that's a planned out thing. It's just we have taken six more hours to get anywhere on this lake than we thought. Right. And so uh you know, the, those sort of events that happen or when a car breaks down, all that kind of stuff, the crew just has to react to it. Yeah. And uh, that, that keeps it fresh. If you had it all written out and scripted out, um then it would be a scripted show, and we'd probably get paid a lot more. But it would also be uh, – <laughs> Craft know, services and yeah, uh, you know, the trailer, the Airstream following behind you. Yeah. yeah. Uh, let's not talk about <laughs> it. No, I'm just kidding. It would be – It would. I think it's really fun to, yeah. to actually go on the adventure and, and learn from what you're trying to get accomplished uh, just as the show is learning at the same yeah. time. So what's sort of the, the next step for you if you, you know, if you already know or maybe don't know? I mean what's – you know, in your racing career or your hosting career, uh, where's sort of where you want to see this go in the next few years? I wish I was one of those people that just had a plan for yeah. the next five, ten years. Um, but, uh, you know, Top Gear is airing now on Tuesday nights on History, and it's uh, 9 Pacific. And it's um, – or I'm sorry, uh, 9 Eastern. But it's a – I completely screwed up my own plug on Top Gear. But it, it's on history. You'll find it. Yeah, it. you'll find it there. But it's a uh, – it, it's, it's one of those shows that you can keep coming up with new ideas. And yeah. it's, it's kind of taking its own path. And I'd like to keep doing it. Is there an adventure you'd like to go on that you haven't, uh, haven't gotten them to do yet? Well, there, we finally got to do one. Actually, I think it's this coming show and this Tuesday is uh, we wanted to do an Autobahn adventure because Rutledge is the biggest pansy ever. 
Right. He literally just doesn't go very fast. Is he in a he's Fiat? always throwing up. In the in the no, he's in a Porsche in in this coming. Who's show. in the Fiat? Nobody's in a Fiat. They're all uh, they're all theoretically Volkswagen products. Oh, okay. Yes. Yeah, because in the promo, I went one of those looked like a Fiat, but uh, well, no. at least at least he got to do it in a Porsche. Yeah, there was a Lamborghini and a Porsche and a Golf R. Polo. And you're in the Golf or, R. Uh, Golf, yeah, Golf R. Yeah, I'm in the Golf R. Which is a wicked little machine. Hopefully, yeah. it's is it coming to the states? I don't. I mean, it's a 300 horsepower all wheel sure. drive. It should be here. Well, they've done the GTI Sounds like a radical, or the huh? R32. Mm-hmm. Right. They had a couple of the R's. But yeah, 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 that were all wheel drive. They're great little. Yeah, they're cool cars. But yeah, so TV wise, um, it's it's spun off into its own thing, and that's a blessing. Uh, I would like to do more TV stuff. I'd like to do stunt stuff. Yeah. You know, we've done some stuff with Hot Wheels that, um, from a marketing side of things, were really successful but from a personal checklist have been great you know i was at the indy 500 where you went down the door and jumped the truck yeah that was that was what's it like to to how do you train for something like that i mean how do you how do you practice it it's such a huge thing you can't you know well (laughs) when in working with mattel which i noticed there's a lot of mattel stuff here it's cool um in working with mattel there it's very methodical process and and you you know we start off with a big testing program and so we started small we the first jump was 165 feet and then we just started going bigger and bigger and bigger until we were at a world record distance and right. uh just literally by moving the ramp back and you didn't make faster. the door taller <laughs> no we didn't have the door <laughs> until we did build the door before indy once gotcha. and, and tried going down it and that was sketchy honestly yeah um, but we needed the door in order to get the speed in the short distance. Yeah, that's going to be crazy going straight down like a roller coaster and knowing that at some point in time you're not going to be connected to anything. <laughs> yeah, so and flying through the air. It was uh you know, 16 feet wide, which doesn't sound like narrow, but when you know, when you're sitting in the truck, you can well, those barely wheels are- six or seven feet wide yeah well the truck is 10 feet wide yeah. so you, you look and you can see the uh you can see the, the the ramp but you can't see the actual track and so you don't see the track until oh, the you truck just see air huh? it's over so you have to be when you're getting towed back up into position you have to be really dead nuts straight because that's the way that you're going off and if it's turned at all when it's parked up there and it sits for a couple hours or whatever and you just sort of forget that it's turned one direction or the other uh, as soon as you go off it's 10 stories straight to concrete geez. and if i remember it wasn't the most perfect of landings it was, it was like, not you got a little deal. sideways a little squirrely mm. at the end where it looked like uh this might not go as planned yeah what was going through your mind as you're okay getting well, to the end of the ramp behind <laughs> the scenes on that uh, Hot Wheels jump was the temperature was 20 degrees hotter on Sunday than it was on Saturday. Sunday was the race day and was the day for us. Right. Right. Um, it was a carbureted engine, 950 horsepower. And when the temperature changes that much, they would normally rejet the right. engine and, and get it running right because it was stumbling on Saturday with the temperature change. They didn't want to rejet it. They didn't want to risk it. And so it was down almost 200 horsepower. And wow. so... The big question was, can we get up to speed? Because there's a minimum speed to make the gap was 100 right. miles an hour. Um, normally, I could hit 100 miles an hour at the turnout point. So I knew I was, I was going to live, essentially. Right. Um, but we could only get to 89 um, on the turnout point with the lower horsepower when we did some test runs. Uh-huh. 
So we ended up just going for it anyway. So the the reason why this affects the way that the car the the it flew in the air was that when you come up to the ramp, uh, perfect scenario, you uh, I would go to about sixty percent throttle right before the truck left the ramp. That okay. would be the right nose ride height. So the nose kind of comes down a little bit like as it dart. goes through the air. Yes. Gotcha. Um, but because I had to hold full throttle all the way up the ramp to get until I saw triple digits. And then I lifted, and I guessed just at the last second, and I went to 80%. The nose flew too high, which means you have to hit the brakes um, once you're in the air. and that Which tilts. probably seems counterintuitive. Well, yeah, it, well, but it tilts. Because the wheels, you want to kind of mo- slow down the momentum, I guess. Or... Uh, yeah, you have 600 pounds spinning at 110 miles an hour, and that rotational moment will go into the body of the truck if kind you stop. Kind of pick it up. Gotcha. So as soon as you hit them and stop the wheels, that rotational moment goes into the chassis and the nose tilts down on the truck. Gotcha. And uh, you could actually drive it in the air a little bit by braking and gassing. You could drive the nose a little bit. It was kind of a weird thing. I bet. But I hit the brakes hard enough that it stalled the engine too. So now the rotational <laughs> moment stopped. And so wow. that's why the truck starts tilting in the air to the side. Right. At first it doesn't feel like much, but after four seconds it's like, wow, it feels like I'm going to land on the door. Um, but the suspension, it was a Pro 2 racing truck from the Lucas Off-Road Racing Series. The suspension is unbelievable yeah. and just absorbed it. And So how long, are, how long are you in the air, and then how long does it feel like you're in the air? It was 3.6 seconds, I think, something like that. And um, it uh, on the good ones, it didn't feel like that long. On the bad ones, it felt like forever. Yeah. Um, but, you know, you, you had to just look at the clouds because you couldn't see the stadium, the ramp, or anything. Mm-hmm. You just had to look at the clouds, and if the clouds were going up, that meant the nose was dropping down properly. Right. Uh, but you only had an instant there. If the clouds were just staying still on the windshield, then you had to hit the brakes. Otherwise, you're in real trouble. Wow. If you didn't hit the brakes early enough, the air could get underneath the hood, and it would backflip the truck. Um, it's just a lot of speed, a lot of air. Yeah, that's that's kind of an insight that I don't think most people would know about. Yeah, I think people just think, ah, <laughs> oh, you're in a cage. If you roll, you'll be yeah. fine. Put a little weight in the back of the truck. It'll be fine. Yeah. Ultimately, that's what you want. Ultimately, you want yeah. it to be set up so you're just a robot. You just mash it to the floor, and then it does its own thing. Yeah, but what's the fun in that if you're not pumping the brakes, <laughs> doing it's, 300 feet in the air? Well, and, you, yeah. and you did the loop-de-loop, too. Loop-de-loop was uh, more scary because you couldn't build up to it. Right. It literally was a... a you, you can't bounce off the edges of the track either. Right. <laughs> Especially no. when you're at the top. <laughs> yeah. There was a... Uh, they did have some guardrails at the top, but there was a... Um, uh, we got a remote control guy to come in. Actually, it looked a lot like AJ, but we okay. got a remote control guy to come in. He was a professional remote control car driver. So he was a very handsome gentleman. He was extremely handsome. <laughs> and he um, was... Uh, he, he had a full-size remote control car that was the same chassis that our Hot Wheels cars were built on. And we just wanted to see it work because the engineer said it was going to be 52.8 miles an hour. If you did 52.8 miles an hour, you're going to be great. You're going to hit 6.8 Gs when you hit the ramp. You'll have one G at the top and then another six at the bottom again, and everything's going to be great. How do you know you're not going to be at 51.8 or 52.9? We had these digital dashes, and we put a – rev limiter in there to match the speed so you just okay. hold it all the way full yep. throttle and let it do the rest yep and then just to make sure that your foot didn't slip off the pedal you had a hand throttle also that you'd lock on wow and uh 
So this remote control, everybody gathered around. We just wanted to see this thing go through the loop, and then we were, we were then we were good. And uh, I mean, it was six and a half stories high. It was really a weird thing to imagine you you know sitting stuck to a track yeah. upside down, six stories up. Um, most fiery blaze crash ever when this remote control oh, car good. went good. to do it. Yeah. <laughs> nice. <laughs> Did it just get up to the top and like a cartoon instantly just fall straight down to the it, ground? Well, or? the guardrails, it bounced off the guardrail, so ah. it lost so much speed. Right. Uh, it lost so much speed bouncing off the guardrails that it just came crashing down. And so you never got to see it do the fall loop before? No. I had a little like Traxxas uh, remote control car truck yeah. that would go 60, and I did it with that. A uh, number of times. That was the only thing that went through the loop before Greg Tracy. He lost the Rochambeau, and so he went first uh, on the test day, and it was fine. And I went. We each went three times or so, and then we're like, well, you know, we were kind of beating up the cars. It's a lot. It's a lot of G's. Six point eight sure. G's. Yeah. We had found things that were breaking and et cetera, and we were like, well, rather than just driving these things till they're completely broken, let's just pack it up and go to L.A. Sure. And when you when you're looking at that, you know, standing outside the loop wow, that's really tall, but when you're in the car and you're driving, do you even get a sensation of being that high up in the air or you just see orange track in front of you and that's Keep it? Keep the wheel straight. It's hard to describe what 6.8 Gs feels like. Like there's, <laughs> uh, you can black out with 4 Gs really easily. Wow. And um, so we went to flight training and and we learned how to keep the Did they put you in that thing that spins around and... The, the, centrifuge? the centrifuge, no, <laughs> but Spies Like Us is still one of my favorite movies. Yeah, <laughs> Dan Aykroyd, and, um, Bill Murray going there, but it's a uh, it's a it's a thing where you know you, you have to just try to keep blood in your brain. Mm-hmm. That's the goal, and your body's like a sponge, and eventually the the blood just comes down through the pores of the sponge. So you just have to try to keep the sponge tight. And uh, do but, they teach you to do the growl? Yes. Lots of hook, lots Nothing of stuff like that. Nothing cooler than the fighter jet guys doing the growl when they're when they're pulling G's. It does, yeah. If you're a passenger in one of those jets, it doesn't. It's probably not a good thing. No, like, yeah. no. You well, you want them to do it because you don't want them to black out. <laughs> yeah. But this this was a so when you get in the car, the 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 process was um, we had a black line on on the ramp. So you just had to follow the black line. When you're driving up to the ramp, it just looked like you were driving into a wall, essentially, because the, the angle was kind of so steep. Right. You just sit there and look at the black line. Um, and you'd get your head back, and you'd start with your feet and your legs and your lower back and your stomach and your arms and just squeeze all the blood up into your head you possibly could. As you, you know, you'd grab second gear, hold the hand throttle, and be on the rev limit, up, 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 coming up to this wall. And I learned the hard way. You lock your head against the seat um, as hard as you can, too. Right. And then you'd follow this black line. And at the top of the loop, we had two white marks on there, giant white painted marks. And that's so you knew you were upside down and you could lift off the gas at that point and maybe even brake on the way down just to lower the Gs for the bottom hit back to the ground. Mm -hmm. Um, It took three times of doing it before I ever saw the white paint because your eyes are your eyeballs Jeez. are like trying to find the same direction wow um, but the the second time i went the car bottomed out and my head went forward a little bit from kind of bottoming out into the ramp and my head was stuck on the hans device cables you know your chin into your chest basically going up the ramp and couldn't you couldn't pull your head back up once you had all the g's pulling you oh down. wow and that was that that was a hard lesson it, that could have been a bad one but it, it, it was mainly just dealing with G's. That was the that was the main deal, and the car surviving. 
So do you end up do you uh, take all of that expertise, you, the the rallying, the drifting, the global rally cross, the stunts, all that stuff, and when you're filming like with your two co-hosts who don't have that experience and that background, are you kind of coaching them along when you're doing some of these kind of crazy adventures and? Um, for sure, if there's a if if there's something that we're doing that's potentially dangerous, yeah, I I feel responsible. Yeah, because you're the one that actually knows what's going to happen, right? R- Rutledge, you don't have to worry about so much. He's going to err to the side of caution. But Adam, right. uh, he doesn't have the risk management uh, system in there, and and he'll just do whatever. And yeah. So if somebody sort of – like we learned that the hard way on the very first show, which was Moonshine. Uh-huh. And we jokingly were saying he had a, a giant Cadillac. The idea was we had to go around a motocross track, <laughs> right? I remember that. <laughs> uh, carrying moonshine, and and whoever had the most bottles left over would win. That you know had survived the ride. And we were jokingly like, "Oh no, that jumps flat. You can take that full throttle, no problem." You know, it just r- guys rallying each other up. Right. Adam takes it full throttle and launched Bent the car. <laughs> oh, it was epic. I mean, he jumped it 50, 60 feet on a pretty steeply faced ramp. And bent it right into a banana and um, survived and was fine. She's tough, but it's like uh, from then on, you just have to be very literal with Adam on what's safe and what isn't. And it doesn't look like you guys have uh, – I always kind of look, but you don't have that much safety equipment. Or if you do, it's really well hidden. Well said. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's not d- that much. Just, just for instance, uh, the last episode, you guys were – stripping cars down to nothing and seeing what torture you could put them through before they all failed. And you ended up in a, a Honda Civic that was really just a half a Honda Civic. What was it like to drive a car that only had two wheels? I mean, that was... <laughs> that was something... I don't know why, but that was kind of on the bucket list. Yeah. And I'm glad we got to do that for that show. But, you know, the gas, state, gas tank went into the passenger foot compartment. A little pipe exhaust came out of the bottom. And... um and the car just sort of ended behind the seat. Um, it was really weird because uh, the car, when you hit the brakes, if you hit them too hard, would endo and just do a front flip. Wow. Um, steering was a little bit weird because, you know, both of the drive tires, it, it's hard to get your head around, but they, they didn't necessarily turn the way that you wanted to. It was always drifting one right. way or the other. And um, it only would steer kind of when it was accelerating, kind of like a jet ski. Um, and it's, uh, it's kind of the ultimate if you've ever put. Do you ever put uh, lunch trays on a front wheel drive car? Yes. It's sort of like yeah. the ultimate version of that because you're steering and accelerating and sliding. Exactly. And then you throw all the exhaust basically coming back into the car with sparks. And right next we, to the gas tank. Next to the gas tank. We found that, and and to be fair, we do have a lot of safety conscious going on we we try to think in a safe way but there's a guy uh, on the side of the road with a fire extinguisher it's generally what you're comfortable (laughs) with yeah and uh in that case the car was just sort of wearing away as we were driving around down the highway you could just sort of see the metal wearing out and once it got to the seat bracket to where it felt like the seat might be the next thing to go out of the back of the car we stopped but it was it was really fun to drive the car how how far did you actually have to drive because i mean you 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 got to do more than one take sometimes, I'm sure. Yeah. Things happen. Well, we were trying to kill the cars because we had, uh, you know, we had replaced the oil with different with different substances. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so um, the, it, it took a while. I mean, it was a couple hours, um, never really driving over 45 miles an hour probably. Right. Um, but uh, Was so that the scariest know. 45 miles an hour? 
It was the loudest. <laughs> it was the loudest. I mean, it was deafening and for sure carbon monoxide poisoning to some extent. Yeah, you didn't look very comfortable. <laughs> no. No, I like that they had to put subtitles under everything because it was so loud. But um, but still, it was very fun. And uh, and strangely, I could still smell Rutledge's. You know, he had uh, like maple syrup or something right. in his engine. <laughs> so I could still smell that. But uh, that was one of the challenges that Adam won. Yeah. So that was uh, – Yeah, in fact, uh, he did some filming – uh, we actually used one of our cars in the episode also. Um, the Rolls-Royce? The vintage Rolls-Royce. That was Fred oh, Astaire's 1927 Rolls-Royce. Okay. No, we're not going to charge you for the tires. On no. The yeah, no, I was going to say, oh, hey, hopefully you haven't seen the show. <laughs> no, actually, the Honda was ours. Yeah, um, like thank yeah. you for cutting it all up. Uh, no. It's a lot lighter and faster now. If you can go pick up all the pieces, please. <laughs> yeah, they they uh, they called us up and said, yeah, we you know we're doing this shoot and we've got a rolls royce and we need to compare it to a vintage rolls royce and do you have something and yeah okay we can do this and, and it's uh it's in the inglewood cemetery like what in the heck are they shooting in the inglewood cemetery so i got to go down there and hang out with adam and the crew for a while and it was it was good fun it was uh kind of nice interesting seat. seeing that car i mean it's a gorgeous car yeah amazing looking and i wondered how all that was going to turn out it was uh it was kind of interesting what was it like to drift something that big i mean how many thousands of pounds is that thing uh, I don't know. It's over six, though. And it, it was good. It had tons of power. Yeah, you had enough power. It didn't matter how what a weight. Yeah. Mulholland has never felt smaller, though. That was a I bet. tiny yeah. little road for that giant car. Um, drifting anything with Adam or Rutledge in the back is super rewarding because uh, they scream, and uh, that makes it feel kind of dangerous. Do you try to make them throw up? Or yeah, you just, oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, gosh, are you kidding? <laughs> the more they scream, the harder you mash the yeah, pedal. Yeah, yeah. Adam, one time, Rutledge, I can't even remember how many times he's gotten sick in the car with me. <laughs> Usually on the ride to the airport. But uh, <laughs> Speaking of which, um, yeah. you know, you've done all these uh, crazy stunts. You've done all the different types of racing, um, you know, all the TV stuff and Hollywood and everything. What's it like when you drive a regular car on the freeway? Are you just totally bored? I love driving. Yeah. I do. I love driving. I'd, I'd so much rather drive than be a passenger. I I uh, still sure. make car noises all the time when uh, I'm by myself. And, it, you know, I just like I, – I, cars have been a fun thing in my life for yeah. a long time. And I know a lot of people like that. Yeah. Which, side side tangent really quick, is one of the reasons why I really fight to be involved in things that make driving fun. Like rallycross mm-hmm. yeah. is about as much fun looking yeah. and as much fun as you can have racing, I think. Um uh, Top Gear is just about having fun with cars, taking cars a little less seriously. I mean, we yeah. cut them in half, for example, but just fun and, uh, you know, stunts and all that stuff. So I, I really love driving, and I hope that we don't all succumb to automated cars and give up yeah, on getting too. our driver's licenses. And, you know, it's scary that kids don't necessarily want their driver's license the day they turn 16 uh, as much as they used to. Let alone yeah. no one under 25 knows what a manual transmission is. Yeah, it's, it's a little bit sickening. I, I have to say, I've... My son, I talk about it once in a while, is less than two years old, and I drive him to daycare every can morning. Can already heel toe, no problem. That's awesome. And, <laughs> and I have a manual in my car, and when he plays with his little Hot Wheels cars, he makes shifting sounds. Yes. So I think he's, See? you know, it's not all is lost. As soon as your kid grabs a Hot Wheel car and goes, yep. then you know something's Yeah, he's running through the gears yeah, a couple good. times, yeah. so we're we're okay. <laughs> Yeah, there's a. But to answer your question, I uh, I'm, I feel lucky driving because I get to vent 
my uh, driving demon out on racetracks and stuff yeah. like that. And so I don't experience road rage. I don't blame people for doing what they do on the road. Um, and uh, that's a nice thing because I ride with people that, that have road rage. And it's, and you uh, must get people who want to race you all the time or show off when you're a passenger. I, I, I doesn't uh, – it not – oh, when I'm a passenger. Yeah. Um, maybe. But uh, when I'm driving, it's – I'm pretty – straightforward i'm yeah. i'm a to b i get it done i i enjoy the process i don't necessarily like transit time that much no. but um you know i don't do anything surprising to people and uh i sort of recognize the human condition of driving having yeah. been a driving coach for a long time sure that um i just uh uh i i, I but I, i'm really happy not to get uh road rage because especially driving up here through LA traffic, if you'd let it all get to you, oh my gosh! It could. Well, when you're when you're on the show and you're driving some of these cars that are all chopped up or modified, or or the car's not functioning very well, and there's a line of traffic behind you, you must upset a lot of people. Yes. But how do you do that with the general public out there? Which some of them have figured out what's going on. Some of them are totally oblivious to what's going on. Yeah. That's got to be tough to try to shoot a show and not make it look like there's a whole crowd of people standing around watching. Um, we've only had to turn one, turn away from one shoot, I think, yeah. because of that. And it was uh, we had a Bugatti Veyron, and we were going to go 240, I think, on a bridge in Tampa. That was a new bridge, new surface, and uh, somehow got out in the news that that's what was going to happen. Three helicopters, like 200 cars on each side of the bridge, were there when we showed up in the morning, and so we had to cancel it. But yeah. Kind of takes the reality. Now, would that have been Rutledge <laughs> driving then? Or yeah, that clearly, been... yes. It yeah. would have been Rutledge. That's right. I would have been in the passenger seat with my foot on the gas. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, so that that was one. But generally, we, we kind of go in. We get our permits as quietly as we can. We get our job done, and we get out. But uh, we do see a lot of people, and generally the fans of the show or people that have seen the show or even know what the li- recognize the license plates. They're all car lovers, and, and uh, we love to sit down and talk and, and yeah. talk to them about what we're doing, which is – which is a lot of fun. Well, cool. well you're, you're doing a great job connecting cars to not only car guys and people in the car culture, but making it sort of in the mainstream and putting it out and getting people who wouldn't normally be into this world and well, making them, it more accessible yeah, for young people and, you know? and, you know, enthusiasts about it. So thank you for doing that. And thank you so much for coming in. Absolutely. Thank you guys for, for the chat. Yeah, thanks for being on the show. Right.